morning. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 12. I'll give you just a minute to open to John chapter 12. The sermon text for today will begin in verse 12. So John chapter 12, verse 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look. The world has gone after him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would show us, as Trey prayed a moment ago, the sufficiency of King Jesus. His his infinitely exalted glory as you've revealed him here to us in the text today. Like so many people in the text who missed him, they missed it. They didn't see, they didn't understand. We don't want to be that way. And we will be that way unless you intervene, just like every person would be that way. So we pray for your mercy today, that you would open our eyes to see the particular glory of Christ, not our definition, his, yours. Show us Jesus' glory this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, things are not always what they seem. Oftentimes, things are not what they seem. And I want to begin by talking about a man named, forgive my pronunciation, Vladislav Spielmann. I'll just call him Spielmann. That's much easier. He was a man living in Warsaw, Poland, at the time of the Nazi invasion of Poland in World War II. And Spielmann was Jewish. So you can imagine he's in trouble. He had been up to that time a professional piano player. He played for the public radio, and he was obviously highly skilled at his craft. He could really play. And after the war was over, his memoirs became available. And uh, the story is now well known. It was recently put into a movie called The Pianist after the piano player. And uh, the story is, is becoming more known than it would have been without the movie. But the story goes that the Germans invade in Warsaw, Poland, and all of Poland, but in Warsaw, the city there. And all the Jews were, of course, uh, the, the mistreatment began. And so the man who had been this great piano player is now just another Jew to the Nazi force. And he is forced to relocate along with his family and the rest of the Jewish population to one particular little part of the city. They're concentrated and isolated there. They're marked out. They have to wear the Star of David on their shoulder. And the story is really, as you've guessed now, knowing some of the history, it's really a tragic story. It's a lot of cruelty. The rights of the Jewish people were gradually 
not, not all at once, but gradually stepped on. So first they're forced to relocate, then later they can't enter into certain parts of town or certain restaurants. And then, of course, it eventually culminates in this systematic murder, both in places like Warsaw, where the guards could freely kill Jews all they wanted to, and then maybe even worse than that in the concentration camps that we're all at least partially familiar with. Well, Spielmann is there. He's in Warsaw in the middle of all this. And he was this great piano player, but he's now been reduced to a man on the run, eating scraps and old, dirty food. He's desperate for survival. He's there in the middle of a crowd of people, and he doesn't stand out in the least. He's just another grubby, dirty, bedraggled, pitiful man being oppressed. Until one particular moment in his story when he's discovered hiding in this upper room. He's hiding out, trying to wait it out. The Russians are coming to deliver Warsaw from the Nazis. But he's discovered, and not by just anyone, he's discovered by a senior member, pardon me, of the Nazi military, a man, Captain Wilm Hosen, Hosenfeld, German name. Now, by the time Spielmann is found, he's gaunt, his beard is mangy, he looks awful, he's been wearing the same clothes, he smells terrible, he hasn't bathed and who knows how long. He's totally on the run, desperate for survival. And he's up in this upper room of this house and in comes the captain of the military unit of Nazi Germany and he finds him. So you have one man in tattered rags, stinking, mangy beard, pitiful, he's frail and thin, he's lost so much weight. And then you have the other man in the full military garb of Nazi Germany, clean-shaven, well-built, he's pristine and perfect, and there's a huge contrast. And so the captain begins to question Spielmann about what he's doing here, why are you here? But he also questions him about his life, and the captain finds out that Spielmann was a professional pianist. And so the story goes, there's a grand piano in storage up there in the middle of this hideout where Spielmann is located, and the captain tells him to play. And the dirty, bedraggled man sits down on the bench. You wouldn't think he could do anything. He didn't look like it at all. But he puts his dirty fingertips on those white keys, and he begins to play. And the captain watches and listens. And the scene that unfolds is just majestic. The man, stripped of all his dignity, now comes out for who he is, and he plays this unbelievable classical piano piece, and things are not always what they seem. The point to appreciate for the moment is that the captain, Captain Hosenfeld, could have never known the treasure in the man when he first laid eyes on him. And that leads to our sermon text for this morning, in which, again, things are not always what they seem. Everybody's laying eyes on Jesus, and nobody seems to see the treasure hidden within. Our first point comes from verses 12 to 15. The king has come. Verses 12 to 15, the king has come. So look at verse 12 in your Bibles. John chapter 12, verse 12. John says there, on the next day, that would be Palm Sunday, of which we're all familiar. Verse 12 again, the large crowd, the large crowd crowd. How big was the crowd? We don't know for sure. About 30 years later, the historian Josephus would estimate that 2.7 million people were at Jerusalem for a Passover, just like this Passover. 
30 years later. So we don't know how many people were there, but it's not a small crowd. John says large. It's large when he says large. The crowds are swollen. There's a lot of people there. See if you can see it in your mind's eye. And apparently, someone, the first person, sees Jesus coming up the road toward Jerusalem. He's the first one to recognize him. Jesus is actually showing up. You may remember from last week that people were in in doubt whether or not he was going to show up for obvious reasons. The Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem had put a warrant out for his arrest. They'd given an order that if anybody knew where Jesus was, they were obligated to report it so that they could seize him. There's a warrant out for his arrest. They didn't know if he was coming. And here he comes. He didn't remain in hiding. He walked right in up to the capital city in plain view. This would be like our pianist, Spielmann, walking, not in hiding, but straight into the capital of Nazi Germany in plain sight for everyone to see, no secrets, Star of David on his shoulder, no hiding. So we can make an immediate application here, can't we? Do you feel today like you're in a situation where people who have power over you are threatening to do you harm or do your family harm? You're afraid of what they can do to you. Maybe it's the political leaders who have sway over you and affect your life. Maybe it's your employer. Maybe it's somebody who, to whom you're indebted. You owe someone money for your mortgage or whatever it is. But someone who has power over you, you're concerned about what they might do to you. And I want to urge you this morning to turn your eyes vertical, follow in Jesus' footsteps, and entrust yourself to God no matter the consequences. Jesus knows what consequences are awaiting him, and he acts in courage, no fear of man, living in obedience to God. Well, as I said, Jesus walks right up to Jerusalem in plain sight. He knows full well the controversy that is burning like a bed of hot coals. He knows where he's going. And this crowd, it's the triumphal entry. The crowd sees him. And John tells us there in the text, in verse 13, that they go and they pick up branches of palm trees and they go out to meet him. The Palm branches. You've heard of Palm Sunday. What are the palms about? Where did they come from? At this time, palms had become something like a national symbol for the nation of Israel. Perhaps you've heard of the, the Jewish Maccabean revolt against Antiochus IV, this revolt where they're throwing off the foreign power. Well, that was a prominent symbol. The palms were a prominent symbol in that revolt, symbolizing the Jewish nation. They were also a symbol at the second temple dedication. The palms were prominent. The palms were even found on Jewish coins. It's a national symbol, maybe symbol, maybe something like our American flag. It symbolizes the nation. That's what the palms are about. And you remember that the Jewish people in Jesus' day are living as an oppressed nation. They're subdued by Rome. They don't have their freedom. Their government is not autonomous. Their rights are being subjugated. They're not in good shape. Remember the taxes? The tax collectors get a bad name. That's because the Romans are taxing the Jewish people and taking their money after having conquered them. They're not free. And they're the people of God in God's land. They're oppressed. Their nation is oppressed. And you can start to see what's going on, why they're grabbing those Palm trees. More on that in a minute. John's told us what the scene looked like. All those people, all those palms, Jesus coming up to the city. 
And in the second half of verse 13, he tells us what the scene sounded like. He says, the crowd begins to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're waving their palms, they're crying out, the adrenaline is rushing, all the excitement of a spontaneously assembled crowd. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is quite a commotion. And the reason that their chant can catch on is that everybody already knows those words. It's like a spark catches easily to dry kindling. It's no effort. It's the same way. This chant, this cry that they let out is well known. The words are not random. They're from Psalm 118. And that psalm, this particular part of it, was always sung at Passover. Also, the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody knows this psalm. So we need to ask ourselves for just a minute, what is the psalm about? Why is it always sung? What are they doing now as they sing it spontaneously when Jesus arrives? Well, like so many of the psalms, the psalm voices the struggle of an ancient Israelite king. It's partially statements, partially addressed directly to God. It's a struggle of an ancient king living in a world in which there are threats from the outside. There are foreign nations coming to try and oppress Israel, and the king is wrestling or struggling in his relationship with the Lord, and he knows by faith that the Lord will deliver him. The right arm of the Lord will do valiantly, and God will keep his promises to deliver his people from all those foreign nations. He describes this inevitable victory like in verse 21, he says of Psalm 118, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. He's envisioning the time in advance when he'll be thanking the Lord for the salvation that's coming. One commentator describes the psalm as one that, quote, celebrates the king's vice-regency within the context of Yahweh's ultimate kingly reign. He's a vice-regent, that is, he's a delegate sent by God to rule in God's place. That's the king's function. The idea is that the Lord will reign on the earth and he'll do it through the line of Davidic kings. The Lord will reign and he'll do it through the Davidic kings. And at the end of the psalm, as it progresses, we find the verse that the crowd is crying out to Jesus. Right then, towards the end, he's sure of the victory that the Lord will give through the king to the nation against the foreign nations. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is that? The king. Blessed is the king who's coming in the name of the Lord as his vice regent, if you will. Now, if you've read the psalm, you maybe noticed that the last line that the crowd says isn't in the psalm. So the words, even the king of Israel, those are added. The crowd adds them. You won't find them anywhere in Psalm 118. They're an addition. The crowd tags them on. So maybe now you can see even more clearly what's in the minds and hearts of the people. They're living under Roman oppression as the people of God. They heard of Jesus' power in last week's passage, his power to even turn back death in the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus pardon me. They grabbed the palm branches, the symbol of Jewish nationalism. They begin shouting this psalm about God's deliverance through the Davidic king. 
to actually add words onto the end of the quotation of the psalm. Even the king of Israel, here he comes, the king, we know he's here. What's the big picture? They see in Jesus their new king to rule in Jerusalem. Now, is that good or bad? Isn't it a good thing that they're calling Jesus the king? That sounds worse than some other things people called him. Sounds better, rather, than some other things people called him. But no, not, not so fast. I don't think that's how John intends for us to see it. I'll just remind you that six chapters earlier in chapter 6, John tells us that the people wanted to come and take him by force and make him king. And Jesus withdrew. He didn't want any part of that. He's gone. And then later in chapter 12, our chapter this morning, John tells us that even though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. It's not all good. They want Jesus as their king, but he won't have it. They want a nationalistic king who gives them a geopolitical deliverance from the Roman Empire to establish the nation of Israel in the land of Israel the way they want it. They want him as the kind of king that they'll have. That's not why he came. He didn't want any part of that. He could have. He doesn't. And we know so further by the next quotation. It comes from Zechariah 9.9. So let's get into the setting for this one. Notice there in verse 14 of chapter 12, it says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. He's coming up to Jerusalem, and the synoptic gospels like Matthew, they tell us how the donkey came. John doesn't zone in on those details. He just wants you to know, Jesus initiated bringing the donkey, and he sat on it, and he did so on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not random. Jesus is doing something on purpose. And John includes it here in his gospel, on purpose. In fact, John tells us that Jesus sitting on this donkey and riding it into Jerusalem is the fulfillment of an ancient promise of God from, as I said, Zechariah. But he tells us in verse 16, if you look there in verse 16, that the disciples have no idea what's going on. It's a little tough to make sense of when you first read the passage, but nobody that day thinks about Zechariah 9.9 except Jesus. He's the only one. Verse 16 says, These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, i.e. cross and resurrection, then they remembered that these things were written of him. Only then, only later, nobody on Palm Sunday thought about Zechariah 9.9. He got on the donkey and nobody got it. Nobody connected the dots. Now, I told you the scene was charged, fully loaded, lots of people, giant palm branches. Here comes our king. He's here now. Imagine what Jesus would, could have done, what he could have done if he would have sat instead on a war horse a regal, majestic animal suited for war. And in the middle of all that, he gets on that. Could he not have started an armed insurrection against Rome? Don't you think the people would have come and they would have said, yes, we can overthrow them. Look at the power that he has even over death itself. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Word is spreading. 
He could have done that. It would have been the Pharisees' worst nightmare. They're trying to silence him. It would have been a total PR disaster. He could have stepped into that spotlight. But he doesn't do it. It's a complete contrast. He doesn't go anywhere near a war horse. He finds a donkey and sits on a donkey as the fulfillment of God's promise. Let's look at the text. The text reads in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. As I said, it comes from Zechariah chapter 9. What is Zechariah chapter 9 all about? What's the context of that Old Testament passage? Well, just like Psalm 118 had a vision of a king, so does Zechariah chapter 9. God is going to bring in peace to his afflicted nation. That's what's coming. They won't be oppressed anymore. But in verse 9, the passage is quoted here in John. Zechariah takes a surprising turn And instead of describing the king as regal and mighty, he does say he's righteous and bringing salvation. But then he says he'll be humble. That's the NASB, or lowly the king will be, the NIV translation. And he'll be mounted on a donkey. This is not what you expect. A lowly king to deliver God's people from foreign enemies and bring peace to the land. A lowly king? A donkey riding king? What's the idea? The idea is that he will not trust in the implements of war that men rely on. You know the passage. We don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in horses. We trust in the Lord. That's the idea of the king who's coming. He won't be the kind of deliverer that man would devise. Consider the donkey. What does a donkey represent? Why a donkey? Donkeys represent humility peace. They're gentle creatures. They're not a beast of war. There are no war donkeys. They don't exist. Donkeys are agrarian creatures. They're used for farming or maybe from travel. They, they go around. You can travel, but you don't get there in a hurry. Nobody runs blazing across a field on a donkey. They're not symbolic of man's might and the tools of war that we would like to rely on. He's not going to be like that. He won't be that kind of king. Listen to one commentator. It's, it's too good not to read. The donkey appears to express humility in this context. That's Zechariah 9. Because verse 10 states that the Lord will cut off the horse from his people, ending their misplaced trust in implements of war. Since Zion's king establishes peace among the nations, verse 10 of Zechariah 9, it would be anomalous or unfitting for him to ride an animal that symbolizes war. He's not that kind of king. And then here's the last line. This is where it's at. The donkey, on the other hand, stands out in this text as a deliberate rejection of this symbol of the arrogant trust in human might, expressing, here it is, subservience to the sovereignty of God. He will not trust in human engineered deliverances. He will instead entrust himself to God alone. So you can see what's going on. The crowd is whipped up into a frenzy. They don't want Jesus on his terms. They want him on their terms. But he never signed on that dotted line. 
They want the deliverance of human might and the implements of war. And they think, they think that their greatest need is to get out underneath the thumb of Rome. They think that's their biggest problem. It feels so big. The nation of Israel is oppressed by an ungodly nation. They feel it every day. They think about it. They read about it on their smartphones. It feels horrible to them. It's in the news every day. They feel it. They're worried about it. There's real consequences to real people, and they know it. They feel like it's their greatest need, and Jesus knows better. He goes and finds a donkey. He's a humble king, a king of submission to the sovereignty of God, a king of suffering. He knows why he's going to Jerusalem, and you know why he's going to Jerusalem, and it has nothing to do with overthrowing Rome. Now, I need to make one qualification. I have no doubt, and you should have no doubt, that God himself was then deeply concerned about the abuses that the Roman government were inflicting on the Jewish people and the way that they oppressed him. God knows what the Romans were doing in all their extortion to the Israelites was wrong, and he hated it. Passage after passage in the Scripture make this crystal clear. The nations are judged for their iniquity. It matters in the heart of God. Do you remember Nineveh? Forty days, and yet Nineveh will be overturned. Or maybe you remember Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the way that God brought that man low and put him out in the field to eat grass like a beast. That wasn't the people of Israel God was cultivating and disciplining. This was an ungodly king and an ungodly nation, and God brought him low. Or maybe you remember Naaman the Syrian, afflicted with leprosy. This is a man in the government of Syria. God cares, and his people ought to care too, about the evil things that happen in the world. God cares about the awful things happening in Afghanistan 2021. He cares about the evils of Nazi Germany in World War II. He knows about it. He cares about the evils in our country today. He cares about the abuses of government. He cares about the abortion carnage and the lies and deception of the LGBTQ revolution. He cares about ungodly ideologies. He cares about lying politicians. He cares about all of that. And I don't just mean that he cares in some general subjective kind of way. I mean he cares and he's going to do something about it. Romans 2, 15 and 16 make it crystal clear. Paul says that the Gentiles, they show the work of the law written on their hearts. They don't have the law written. They have it in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when. Here it is. There's a day coming. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Which men? The Gentiles. God knows all their sins. He knows the way their conscience afflicts them when they do wrong. All the Gentiles in America today and all of them forever, God knows. And the day is coming when he will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I am not saying that God does not care about the evils that are perpetrated in the world. You can have perfect assurance that he does. You can have perfect assurance that he cares about the very ones that were happening all around Jesus on Palm Sunday when he rode the donkey up into Jerusalem. But Jesus was not there that day to right those wrongs. He had come for something else, something infinitely more important. 
And to say that it's more important is not to say that government-perpetrated evils don't matter at all. That would be a fallacy. The issue is a right ordering of the priorities of God. So imagine a farmer. He's looking over his cornfield. There's disease. There's locusts. It's going to be a really bad year. He's out in the field. He sees it. He's got 12 kids. He's desperate. What's going to happen? He doesn't know. And his neighbor shows up. And his neighbor says, the volcano, it's coming. It's burping up those first splashes of lava. Now the full eruption is coming, and it's coming right at you. And the farmer looks back at the neighbor, and he says, I know, I hear you, but how can you have no compassion? This is going to be a terrible harvest. How can you not care? This is absurd, right? The neighbor does care about the man, but he also understands that there's something looming in the background that infinitely overshadows the very legitimate problem of diseased corn. The volcano is going to blow, and so it is with Jesus on Psalm Palm Sunday. God does care about government oppression then and now, and he will deal with it, but that pales into comparison to the volcanic eruption of the wrath of God ready to rain down molten lava just like he did already in Sodom and Gomorrah on all the sinful souls of planet Earth. There's something bigger that Jesus came for. He came to conquer, but as a lowly, suffering king, and he came to conquer a lot more than Rome. He came to suffer as a Passover lamb, to take onto himself all the sins of all mankind. The bigger problem is the good, right, wholesome judgment of God against evil, which we have committed. That's the huge problem. And Jesus knows it. And he's come to deal with it. And so full of sobriety, he finds a donkey. He knows he's going to be a lowly suffering king. He gets on the donkey and the crowd goes on crying. And he finishes his ride in Jerusalem knowing full well what's coming his way. Nobody else, John makes it clear, nobody else understands the full gravity of what's happening except Jesus. Everybody else is befuddled one way or other. Jesus knows. Nobody else gets it. That brings us to the second part of our text, verse 16 through 19. That's the muddled onlookers. I began by talking about Mr. Spielmann as an example to show us that things aren't always as they seem. Specifically, people are not always what they seem. In verses 16 through 19, John, the writer of the gospel, shows us that the same is true for Jesus and particularly for three different groups of people. Jesus wasn't all that he seemed in their eyes. First, for the disciples. In verse 16, John the writer tells us that the disciples, as I said, totally missed what Jesus was doing at the time. They didn't get it until later, until he'd been glorified, until they'd seen him suffer and die and particularly be vindicated in resurrection power so can you imagine them sitting around later, talking, and then they remember one of them. Oh, he did ride a donkey that day. Oh, we missed it. But he did, didn't he? And then they remember Zechariah 9.9, wide open, bulging eyes. And then they see there was no mistake in the lowly king. He didn't make an error. He didn't misprioritize the issues. 
after he's glorified, they can put the pieces together. He was both the exalted king of Psalm 118, full of might and power and deliverance against all the ungodly nations, and the lowly king of Zechariah 9.9, mounted on a donkey, who brings peace for the people of God. The disciples missed it until later. It's so easy to miss it. It's so easy to get all out of joint, all our priorities turned upside down, to feel so acutely all the wrong things. They're important. But if you feel that any other thing is so big and then Jesus is so small, you have a big problem. The second group, the crowds. John tells us in verse 17 and 18, I'd encourage you to look there in the text. In verse 17 and 18, he tells us the reason that the crowd shows up. There are two crowds. The first crowd was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They were there, and they went about spreading the word about what had happened when Jesus raised him. And John tells us that it was specifically for this reason. Look at verse 18, the very beginning. For this reason also, the people went and met him. That's the second crowd. Because they heard that he had performed this sign. It was because of the sign, because of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You remember that John organizes his whole gospel around signs. When he turned water to wine and multiplied the loaves, and when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they're meant to provoke faith in Jesus. So again, you might say, well, what gives? Aren't they doing what John said is the point with the signs? They see that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and they come and follow Jesus. They come to see him. Well, people had responded wrongly to Jesus' signs before, even though it looked like they were responding in faith. So you remember when Jesus multiplied the loaves to feed the 5,000 men, and some of them were there, and they saw what had happened. They recognized that this was a miracle, something very unusual was going on, and they saw all this, and then what did they do? They followed Jesus. They go and they follow him. And what does Jesus say to them when they get there? You remember? You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves and were satisfied. Translation, you don't want me, you want more bread. That's why you're seeking me. So we need to read carefully what John writes. As I said earlier, later in chapter 12, he says, even though they had done so many signs, the people were not believing in him. They don't want Jesus. They don't want him on his terms. They don't want the person to whom the signs point. They want what he can give them. And man, are we in danger of the same thing. Friends, we live, most of us, more or less in different ways, but in in many circumstances, we live in a context where we're incentivized to follow Jesus, to get good things, to have an easy life. Now, I understand that there are certainly circles in today's world where you will not get good things coming to you for following Jesus, where you'll suffer. Like at work, maybe. Maybe you work construction or in an office and you go around telling people the whole counsel of God. I understand. I understand. 
that you'll probably suffer for it, and God knows. But also, we still do live in a situation oftentimes where we're incentivized to follow Jesus. Another way of saying that is we can get lots of good and easy things if we follow Jesus. Do we want the rewards that come with maybe in the church context? With being a follower of Jesus, we get respect, we get admiration, we get recognition, we get all these things. People think well of us. Or do we want Jesus come what may? Results forgotten. Which one is it? There's a subtle difference, isn't there? It's subtle for the crowds. It's subtle for us. We, could, we ought to examine our hearts and see whether we're after Christ, no matter the consequences, no matter if we get no bread, no matter if we get no resurrection power, no matter if we get no deliverance from Rome ever, no matter if this country that we live in today goes up or down, no matter what, it's Jesus I'll serve. We need the Spirit to help us to turn away from sin and to follow Jesus. We will never regret it. The third group is the Pharisees. In verse 19, the last verse of our text, John tells us that the Pharisees are in panic mode. They're pushing that big red button. Imagine, they want to silence him. That was last week's sermon. They don't want everyone following him. They're even willing to take out Lazarus via some kind of hitman or whatever their plan is so that people will quit talking about how Jesus raised him from the dead. They want him silenced. And that's not at all what they got. They got the exact opposite. A huge crowd. Everybody's attention is on Jesus. Just like lately, over the last year and a half, so many people have put so much attention on COVID-19. I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying it has the attention of everybody. Or like in World War II, imagine if you were in World War II and the war is ongoing. Everybody's turning their attention to the events of the war and how it's progressing and who's going to win. It's like that in Jerusalem, and it's the Pharisees' worst nightmare. Everybody is seeing what is going on, all eyes on Jesus. The Pharisees are in panic mode, and they say, you are speaking to themselves, you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. It's a total loss. They were in complete rejection of him. But just like the other two groups, for them, things were not always as they seemed. They saw him as a threat to the people of God. They saw him as a false teacher who would lead the people of God astray. They saw him as a problem. Nobody at Palm Sunday, not the disciples, not the crowds, certainly not the Pharisees, adequately understood what Jesus had come for or who he was. Nobody except Jesus. He was the only one. So what about you? Can you, unlike the crowds, unlike the disciples, follow Jesus on his terms, whatever they are? Signature first, read it later. Whatever his terms are, can you follow him like that? Or do we draw lines in the sand? Or are certain things we're not willing to do? I'm not willing to lose my job. I'm not willing to have awkward relationships with my neighbors. I'm not willing to say such and such to whoever it is, my kids. Do we have terms? We do. We do have terms. It's not, I shouldn't ask it in a yes or no question. Maybe I should say, where are you insisting that you follow Jesus on your terms, not his? Do we explain away the passages in the Bible that rub us the wrong way? We don't like it. 
Can we follow, can you follow a suffering Savior who promised that you'll walk down the same path? Are you signing up for that today? To follow a suffering Savior who said they'll treat you like they treated me? A Savior who wins by losing, who says joy is in giving, who says life is in death? What are you refusing to give up? What part of the world are you trying to hang on to when you know Jesus would have you give it up? You won't regret it. There's no net loss in Jesus' economy. When you give, you are gaining all of Christ. The more you give, the more you get. Whatever He calls you to lay down, you have not lost anything. There is no real net sacrifice in that sense because you get Christ, you get eternity with Him. He speaks of eternal rewards. There's only winning when you let go of what He'd have you let go of and follow Him. Can you, unlike the Pharisees, relinquish all your desires for power, for prestige, for control, for influence, to be respected and to be well-known? Can you live without recognition? Can you be lowly? I could ask it more specifically, are you now acting in ways that prove all those things are true? Would your spouse, would your friend, would your children say that you're acting in ways that say you have to be honored, you have to be recognized, you have to be respected? You could ask them. Today would be a good day to ask them. Have you put all your trust in someone other than yourself? Church, if you're like me, God knows there's a lot of yeses to all the questions I just asked. A lot of things that we don't want to give up. A lot of things we're afraid to lose. A lot of ways that we're afraid of suffering. There's no... In a sermon like this, there is no, this crowd over here got them all right, and this crowd over here got them all wrong. That's not the way it works. Every one of us is fighting the same battle. We all have the same problems. We're all tempted to hang on to self and the world, and we all fail. So have you put all your trust in someone who's not you to get it all right? Jesus no one understood what he was doing. Nobody got it right on Palm Sunday. Jesus only, full of wisdom, knowing the will of God and being willing to let it all go in the way that we should, marched himself up to Jerusalem and then rode the donkey up to Jerusalem, willing to be a lowly king, willing to be slain for our sins, knowing full well by faith assured in the way that we would like to be assured that the resurrection is coming. He knew what was coming. Have you put your trust in him? Confess all your failures and you will find mercy from Jesus. Listen to me as we close. You can trust him. You can't trust in an absolute sense anybody like you can trust Jesus. You can trust him when the government is oppressing a nation and they're trying to get away with it. There is a day coming when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You can trust him when he calls you to suffer for doing what is right in his eyes. 
You can trust him when that diagnosis comes that you were so afraid would come. You can trust him when you can't yet see how his providence is going to play out in your life in any kind of way that seems to make sense. You can trust him. He'll always lead you with perfect wisdom, just like he did on that day as he went up to Jerusalem. You can trust him when the day of judgment draws near and your life comes to a close or Christ returns out of the sky with the clouds. You can trust him that day. God will know every failure. The volcano of the wrath of God will come and it will erase all sin from the face of the earth in judgment. And Jesus made a complete end for all of his people of every sin, the punishment for all crimes, the violation of every law, every mixed motive, every time we failed to be bold, everything we would or should have given up and did not. He made an end of it all. He's the Passover lamb. God will pass over his people. He was fully vindicated as the son of David who will sit on the throne as king, not like the world envisions a king, but like God envisions a king, the son of David on the throne forever. God will see to it that he forever fills the throne and you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, you know the glory of Christ. And by your judgment, he is worthy of all glory and honor, worthy of the name above every name, worthy to sit at your right hand forever and ever, worthy to have all authority in heaven and earth given to him, worthy to have every knee bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. You know he's worth all of it. You see the wonder of a lowly king, a suffering savior, a servant king. You see it. And I praise you for the way you've enabled us to see at least something of that today. The lowly king, full of glory. All power laid down. Submission. Deference to you. Lord, thank you that Jesus is our King. Thank you that He doesn't call us to a high standard that He hasn't kept. Thank you that He walked down the path of humility, lowliness, suffering, and self-sacrifice first, and only then calls us to follow behind Him. Thank you that we can be certain that that path leads to resurrection glory, not to despair. I pray you continue to give us confidence in him day by day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.